Hi everyone. I trust that you are well and that you've had a good week. We're going to start a new sermon series today called Habits for Wholeness. Over the next several weeks, I'd like us to consider a few practices that traditionally have been called spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines may sound a little daunting though, hence the slightly softer title Habits for Wholeness. I'd like us to spend some time looking at essential habits like Bible reading and prayer and giving and evangelism. And I'd like us to do that because last year we suddenly found ourselves out on our own. We didn't have Christian fellowship. We couldn't meet up for church services or Bible studies. And so suddenly we had to start doing a few things all on our own. Maybe we had to read the Bible for ourselves or discover how to pray for ourselves. And maybe we were successful in our attempts and our times with the Lord were deep and rich and meaningful. But maybe we weren't so successful. And we've suddenly discovered that for several weeks or months now, we haven't read God's word or prayed. As we look ahead to 2021, I have a suspicion that there will be times in this year where once again we won't be able to meet up with others. And so I thought it would be good for us to take the time to learn a few new habits that will sustain us and grow us in our Christian lives, whether we're able to meet together or not. I'm going to begin by spending three weeks laying a bit of a foundation the why of these habits to wholeness, if you like. We'll talk about the purpose of habits, look at the concept of bad habits, and see the benefit of cultivating good habits. And after that, we'll dive in and have a look at the how of habits to wholeness. How do we read the Bible? How do we pray? How do we fast? How do we share our faith? And I'm really trusting that this will be a real time of growth and development in our lives, even as we face another difficult year. Just to say that I've used a couple of resources in preparing some of these sermons. One of the main resources is from an American Christian philosopher and writer called Dallas Willard. He wrote a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. Another source that I used was a pastor and writer, John Ortberg. He wrote a book, The Life You've Always Wanted, also on spiritual disciplines. He's quite amusing. Uh, John Ortberg was greatly influenced by Dallas Willard, but he writes in a much more casual manner to the great philosopher. In the introduction to his book, he says that he seriously thought of calling his book Dallas for Dummies, because he takes a lot of Dallas's ideas and presents them in a way that's much easier to understand. Well, with all of that as an introduction, let's dive right in. Today, I'd like us to look at the topic of becoming like Jesus, which is really the main purpose of these habits. We're going to look at a number of verses this morning, but I'd like to begin by looking at Paul's words to his friends in the church in Galatia. In chapter 4 of his letter, he expresses his concern for them, and we get an insight into his desire for them, and in fact his desire for us too. 
He writes this in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And then in the book of Ephesians, Paul speaks about the purpose of the church, why God has put us together in community. And he says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. He says that God's desire is that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And the key thoughts in those verses is that God desires for Christ to be formed in us and for us to attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. If someone were to ask us, would you like to be like Jesus? I very much doubt if any of us would say, no, I don't think so. Thank you very much. Our stated desire as Christians is to become like Jesus. Our own church's missional strategy is reproducing the full life of Jesus by discipling one another in missional congregations where everyone knows your name. Our very title, Christians, literally means followers of Christ. We sing about becoming more like Jesus. We pray and ask to become more like Jesus. And it's not just our stated aim at the Pinelands Baptist Church. There are millions of others throughout our country today who meet up regularly for the same reason, to become like Jesus. But the question is, is it happening? I don't think that Statistics South Africa has done a religion report since 2001. But according to the 2001 population census, 80% of our population listed their faith as Christian. Which raises an important question. If you were to put 100 people in a dark room and you gave 80 of those people a lighted candle, do you think that their light would make a difference? Or if you took a kilogram of nice tenderized steak and you added 800 grams of salt, do you think that you'd be able to taste the salt? I think so. So why is it that 80% of our population, those who are called to be salt and light, aren't making a huge difference in our society? Now, of course, we know that statistics can prove anything. And we know that there would be a large portion of the people surveyed who probably never go to church at all. But when the census was pushed under their noses, they had to tick something. But setting aside that issue for a moment and taking an overall look at the Church of Jesus Christ in South Africa today, I can't say that we're all that different from the people around us. Christians, by and large, are no more loving, no less materialistic, no more faithful and no less prejudiced. And if you doubt that, just listen to some of the horrendous stories of church splits or look at the divorce statistics. What is the problem? Why aren't we different? And much closer to home, why am I not different? That's the point. I'm not asking these questions so that we can spend half an hour moaning about how terrible the world is and go away feeling pretty good about ourselves. 
I'm asking these questions because as I look into my own heart, I see much of the world reflected there. In the words of the Anglican Confession, I have not loved God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. I've not loved my neighbour as myself. I see my own prayerlessness, my own lack of love. What is my problem? Well, let's go to another passage of Scripture, this time from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 12 and 13. Paul says to us, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, there's loads that we could look at here, but I think in these verses, Paul highlights two key areas that need to be sorted out in order for me to become like Jesus. Two things in my life that can so often become obstacles to me becoming like Jesus. Paul speaks about to will and to act. There's the area of my will and the area of my actions. And let's have a look at those two things for a moment. Firstly, our will. Let me go back to a question that I asked a little bit earlier on. Do you want to be like Jesus? As I said, most of us say yes, but I think that for some people, even some good Christian people, there would be a tiny corner in our hearts, or maybe even a big corner in our hearts, that if we were honest, would have to say no. That part might be so tiny that we may not even admit it to ourselves. But you see, I think that when we think about following Jesus or being like Jesus, we imagine white robes and sandals and gentle Jesus, meek and mild. We imagine a person who looks really nice in a children's picture Bible, but who just isn't much good for the real world. What does Jesus know about living in my world? What does he know about mortgages and rising petrol prices and getting the kids to school? Jesus' words about loving your enemies and doing good to those who hate you, well, they were fine for his time, but come on, what does Jesus know about the legacy of apartheid, about BEE, about affirmative action? What does Jesus know about my life and my struggles? Telling me to become more like Jesus is asking me to withdraw from the real world and become some kind of monk. But let's look again at this person, Jesus, and let's look briefly at both who he was and what he said. First of all, who was Jesus? And the simple answer is he was and is God come in the flesh. And again, those two words, God and flesh, summarize his relevance to my life. Firstly, in terms of his flesh, the writer of the book of Hebrews says this in chapter 4. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Since God's children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Later on in the book, he says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, 
yet was without sin. Jesus came down to earth and for 33 years experienced everything that you and I have ever experienced and some things that you and I will never experience. That's what the writer is saying here in the book of Hebrews. We don't have a God who is so vastly different and so far removed from us that he doesn't understand. John Stott, a Church of England pastor and Bible scholar, once wrote this. He's speaking in the context of suffering, but I love what he says here. Let me read it to you. I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. Jesus, as God come in the flesh, is able to sympathize with me. But secondly, Jesus is God come in the flesh. Again, let me read to you what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 1 and verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Jesus is the creator of the universe, and the more you study our world and the universe, the more amazing this becomes. For example, in astronomy... We live in the Milky Way galaxy, which consists of between 100 and 400 billion stars. At one point in the Old Testament, God says to Abraham, look up into the sky, count the stars. Now, if Abraham or you or I were to try and do that and we were to count one star per second, you know how long it would take us to count the stars in our galaxy? 2,500 years, and that's just one galaxy. It's estimated that there are 100 billion galaxies in the universe. 
God says to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 25, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Or take physiology, the human body. Jesus is the one who created the 75,000 miles of blood vessels in your body that take blood to 60 trillion cells. Or in nature, in the woodpecker, Jesus is the one who made the tiny sponge-like cushion between its head and its beak so that when it drills a hole it doesn't knock itself out. That might not mean a lot to you, but it's a big deal to the woodpecker. And so as Christians, we don't only say, Jesus is Lord, but we can also say, Jesus is clever. In fact, the two go together. What's the point of saying, Jesus is Lord, boss, king, master, if we can't also say, Jesus is clever? Science tells me that my cell phone is actually made of a swirling mass of tiny particles that I can't even see. Atoms made of protons and neutrons and electrons and even subatomic particles all swirling around together. What keeps them all together, forming this solid piece of plastic and metal and glass? The Bible tells me in that same passage from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 17, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so how can I say that Jesus is boring or irrelevant or out of touch with reality? In Jesus, I have someone who is perfectly able to understand my life and give me the best advice that I need, the best advice on my marriage, my relationships, my children, my work. But let's also look quickly at what Jesus said, his teaching. Jesus didn't just give us wonderful, pious-sounding platitudes. His teaching wasn't for some otherworldly realm. The Sermon on the Mount isn't just a picture of what heaven will be one day. In his teaching, Jesus gave us a better way to live. I truly believe that when Jesus said, forgive others, he was giving us a better way to live. Or when he said a man's life is more than his possessions, that's a better way to live. When he told us not to lust, not to see people simply as objects, he was giving us a better way to live. And we often think, particularly when we're young, nah, Jesus' way is boring, I'll make it on my own. And later we find out, sometimes with tragic results, that the shiny stuff that we so desperately chased and even sold our souls for, that really it was empty and useless. To use Blaise Pascal's phrase, it was like licking the earth. And so, just to summarize, in the area of my will, when I feel that maybe it's not worth following Jesus, when I'm tempted not to follow him and to head out on my own, I need to remind myself that Jesus is fully man and therefore able to understand me and direct me, and fully God, all-knowing all wise, knowing precisely how best to live my life. Here is somebody who is fully trustworthy and has my best interests at heart.
But let's move on to the second area of my life, the second obstacle that prevents me from being like Jesus, not just the area of my will, but now the area of my actions. In that verse in Philippians, Paul spoke about acting according to God's good purpose. And here, I believe, is where many Christians fall down. I want to become like Jesus. Great. What's your plan for becoming like Jesus? Um, well, I don't really have one. You see, many Christians think that they will change and become like Jesus naturally. It'll just happen automatically. All you need to do to become a Christian is believe certain things, and simply a belief in those things will bring about a change. Now, God does change our lives dramatically when we come to him. There's a change that takes place. We move from darkness to light, from death to life, from being God's enemies to becoming his beloved sons and daughters. And there is a change in our behavior. But let's go back to that verse in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. There's a paradox here. The Bible says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God does work in our lives through his Holy Spirit, transforming us from glory to glory. But we also need to work, not to earn our salvation. We can never do that. But to show the reality of our salvation, to cooperate with God's Holy Spirit, to become the person he wants us to be, to get to know the one who loves us so much and sent his son to die for us. Paul says that we're to work, and that's what I'd like us to look at in this series. What are some of the things that I can practically do to cooperate with God's Holy Spirit to make me more like Jesus? We get a clue to that from the life of Jesus himself. And so, for example, we read in Luke chapter 5 that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus, the Son of God, God come in the flesh, when he was on earth, needed to spend time alone with his Father in solitude and in prayer. Jesus did some hard work on his relationship with his Father, and yet we sometimes think that we can become like Jesus without spending time with God, as Jesus did. Now again, when we hear about things like prayer and fasting and solitude, we often react negatively, and possibly for a couple of reasons. Firstly, there's our reaction as Protestants. Sometimes we've been taught that people who do those things try and atone for their sins, or are trying to twist God's arm into doing what they want. Now, of course, those things could be used in those ways, but that's not really what they're intended for. Those practices are intended to make us like Jesus. Secondly, I think we react because when we hear of things like fasting and praying and solitude, we tend to think of monks and nuns and other strange people. And we've all heard stories of people in the past who've just generally been weird. And yes, history is littered with examples of people who focused on the activity rather than focusing on God. 
they've lost the plot a little bit. Just like you get some bodybuilders who want muscle for muscle's sake. But you wouldn't look at those excesses and say that keeping fit was a bad idea. Spiritual exercises can be abused, but it doesn't mean that they aren't good for us. All that just to say that it isn't enough just to have the will, the desire to be like Jesus. I need to have an action plan as well. A plan that will take hard work. And we'll look at this in the weeks that lie ahead. Maybe we don't associate hard work with the Christian life. But if you think about it, nothing in this life comes without hard work. If you want success in golf, you've got to practice. You have to stand at a golf range and practice hitting the ball again and again. If you want to be a good runner, you have to get out onto the road when it's warm and when it's cold. If you want to play the piano well, you have to practice all those scales over and over. Reminds me of the young man who was lost in London. He had a backpack on and was carrying a guitar case. And he went up to one of the street sweepers and said to him, Tell me, sir, how can I get to the Albert Hall? And the street sweeper looked at him and looked at his guitar case and said, Well, son, you've got to practice. If we want to do well at anything in this life, business, sport, academics, it takes hard work. Why should we think it will be any different in our spiritual lives? If we want to do well in our relationship with Jesus, if we want to become like Jesus, it will take hard work. I'm not saying these things as someone who has this all together. I'm saying this as someone who has been challenged about this and someone who would like to start working on this in my own life. And I'd love it if you would join me on this journey in fact, that's Paul's focus in that verse in Ephesians. Although we're looking at the personal aspect of these verses, Paul is actually speaking to the church as a whole. Look at it again, chapter 4, verse 23. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is something that we get to do together, not in isolation. We've covered a lot of ground this morning, but in one sense we've only scratched the surface. We've still got a long way to go. It may seem like such a huge task, but in case we feel like despairing today, let's look one last time at that verse in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13 Remember, Paul tells us, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. We're not on our own in our attempts to become like Jesus. God works within us both to will and to act according to his good purpose. May you experience that as a living reality in your life this week even as you seek to be more like Jesus. Amen.